Open us in a, a prayer um, uh, this evening, and uh, just thanks for being here. I'm excited about this uh, uh, this study uh, with the, this series that we're doing. We're just kind of looking at different different places in the Bible and looking at kind of themes that run through those places, you know, and, and messages that God may have. So I'm going to be looking at Shechem uh, tonight. I've just I've had a blast um, uh, researching and studying this uh, this last week. Uh, actually, it's been two weeks because you gave me last Wednesday off. So. Um, been excited to be here. So let's go ahead and open with a prayer. Oh my God, I just, uh, I love you so much. I thank you for the gift of just one more day in your presence. Uh, God, for Jamie being here tonight, just in how much joy it brings us just to see her back and um, praying your blessing over what's ahead there. Um, I pray that you open up your word to us tonight. Um, I pray, God, that this won't just be a look back at history, but a look uh, at who you are and your heart and uh, that you'll speak to us through your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, um, Shechem, um, and I, I love this series so much because, uh, you know, I'm learning a whole lot. But this narrative is going to begin. We're going to go through several places in Scripture. But this narrative begins in Genesis chapter 12. Um, and I kind of want to talk about the importance of Genesis 12. Um, Genesis opens up with a series of well-known Bible stories. We're going to start with Adam and Eve, and then we're going to talk about Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, um, uh, the Tower of Babel. But they seem to be almost disassociated stories to a degree, except for the genealogy that kind of connects what's going on. And then when you get to chapter 12 of Genesis, it begins, it opens a narrative that is going to be carried through the rest of Scripture. Um, the calling of Abram um, it opens here, and we don't know anything about this man, Abram. Genesis 12 just opens up and it says, Abram. And this is the text of Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. There are um, 13 times that promise is repeated. I wish it were 12 so I could be all biblical with this, but um, it, it's 13 um, 13 different times through Genesis, the covenant is given again, over and over and over again. I'm going to bless all people through you, and this land will be yours. This is the big promise that not only is the major theme of the book of Genesis, but the entire Old Testament is really about this nation of Israel, how God would call them to be a nation. So then later, um, when we get to verse 6, it says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site uh, of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Um, I don't know what this great tree looked like. Um, it, it's a really special narrative to me. A lot of these stories are going to involve this great tree at Shechem. Um, whether we're talking about Abraham or Jacob or Joshua, we're all going to come back to this great tree. Um, and I don't know what it was. This is, this is a picture of a massive oak tree. Um, there was a, an oak tree in Austin um, that means a whole lot to me um, uh, because it was that place that I used to go and really study and think about God and read 
And it was kind of the place that I decided to really give my life to God. There's this big oak tree there. And so when I look at these stories, I'm like, wow, that's really special to me, thinking about what it would be like to, to come to this great tree. Um, and so I just want you to keep this in your mind. When you come to Shechem, and, and I'm just using my imagination here, but I'm also thinking traveling across the desert plains, traveling across the wilderness, you're kind of happy to see a big oak tree, you know, or whatever kind of tree you might have come across. Um, but he makes this promise. He says, I'm going to give your offspring this land. And that is where the story begins. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to Jacob. Now his grandson, uh, Jacob, comes back and buys this land. Now why does he buy Shechem? Because Shechem is the sacred site. This is the most important site where God initially made a promise that this land will be yours. I'm going to give you this territory, right? And so in Genesis 33, uh, verse 18, Jacob came back from uh, Padan Aram. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem and Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, and that means um, uh, the great God of Israel, or mighty is the God of Israel. Uh, So they come back and they start to settle this land, and Israel kind of begins the story of this place called Shechem. Um, He has um, all of these sons, but they have a daughter as well. You remember the the daughter of Israel? Who was that? Y'all know this? It's crazy. Um, Dinah. So these 12 sons, and it's true, and I don't blame you for not remembering some, some these 12 sons, we remember the 12 sons, they had a sister, right? Um, oh man, you are the man. Um, these 12 sons have a sister. Now when you have 12 boys, the last thing you want to do is hurt the sister, right? You don't, you don't mess with Dinah. Even though Dinah's kind of the older sister, she was born to Leah, um, but when they're in the land, this place, Shechem, is named after a person. That person was the ruler of the land. His name was Shechem. It means shoulder, and shoulder was a symbol of strength. So it's not that weird of a name. In our culture, it would be. But when you called somebody shoulder, it means their strength. It means they're powerful. His name is Shechem. Shechem violates sister, violates Dinah. And the 12 sons lose it. And they come back, and they're, they're not honest about what they're going to do. And, and it, the narrative begins here, I keep using that word, that let's intermarry. Let's let your people marry our people, and we're going to kind of, let's just come together. And uh, that is when um, the sons of Israel, it gets into a really gross story about what they do out of revenge for um, their sister. Um, and that, but right after the story happens, it says this in Genesis 35, verse 4, and this, this is where it kind of gets back into our theme. They gave Jacob and all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. And so he's going to come back to this place that his grandfather came and made a covenant with God about this land, and Jacob's going to come back to this massive oak at Shechem, and this, this place that becomes sacred, he's going to set up an altar here. He buries the foreign gods under the tree, the text says. And this is going to be a place where they recommit themselves once again to say, we're going to serve the Lord and serve him only. 
All right, now we're going to kind of fast forward. Um, they settle in the land. They become a family. They become not really a nation yet, but a very large and great family. Um, Joseph, before he sold into slavery, do you remember where he was sold into slavery at? Shechem. He goes back to Shechem. His brothers betray him. And that is when the story of Israel comes to a conclusion because now we're slaves in Egypt after this. So 400 years later, we're going to fast forward, go past Moses. When Joshua enters the land, generations and generations later, the first thing that Moses commands him to do is go to Shechem. Now, this is a place that was sacred. This is home. This is where Joseph's story came to a conclusion. This is where Abraham initially received the promise. This is where we made a vow that we will serve the Lord alone, that we're not going to intermarry, that we're not going to give ourselves to foreign gods um, or anything like that. And in Joshua 23, um, they come and Joshua says this to the people. If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations and remain among you, that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. On that day, this is um, chapter 24, verse 25 of Joshua. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of God. Now we've come back to this oak tree that, and and really to study this, apparently it's still there. Of course, oak trees can be there for a long time. But this sacred spot, can you imagine 400 years later? 400 years later, all of this has taken place, but they remembered Abraham, they remembered Jacob, they remembered the covenant that was made, and they came back, and it's the same story this time coming into the land. We're not going to mess with the foreign gods that are here. We're not going to mess with any of that. This is going to be the Lord's, and we're going to commit ourselves to him alone. And so they go up um, two mountains, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, um, And this is where the story really, really gets cool. Uh, They go up, half the tribes go up Mount Ebal, and half the tribes go up Mount Gerizim. Apparently, um, Joshua and and some of the Levites probably stood in the middle. Because when you look at this this territory, um, this is a Google Earth aerial view um, of the area. I want you to notice Jacob's well at the bottom. We're going to come back to that a little bit later tonight. But on either side of Shechem are Ebal and Gerizim. And half the tribes go up one and half the tribes go up the other. One commentator I read, I loved what he said. He said, it's interesting because Shechem was considered the neck of the land. And the two mountains considered the shoulders. And you remember that the priests um, in, in Leviticus had two stones on either shoulder with the six names of the tribes of Israel on either shoulder. And so now you have sort of a picture of that, the neck of the land and the six tribes on this mountain and six tribes on this mountain. And they called out. And if you can just imagine, imagine the biggest stadium you've been in where you can just hear the roar. You can hear the noise from way across the the valley. And you can just hear them crying out. Cursed is the man who casts an idol and sets it up in secret. That's what Joshua would call out. And the tribes would shout, Amen. 
Um, and it would be amen. I mean, it would be amen or something like that, but it was a very close word. Amen. And you would hear that just roar through the valley. And then they, he, would, he would say, cursed is the man who dishonors his father and mother. Amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. Amen. That, it starts getting weird. You're thinking, well, who, who does this, right? Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, and everyone's like, amen. <laughs> and, and it, it kind of gets weird from there. But just imagine this scene of covenant taking place at Ebal and Gerizim. And Ebal would represent the cursings on the land, if you did not walk in the law of God. And, and um, Gerizim would represent the blessings on the land. This is another view. I have fun with Google Earth all the time. This is what I do when I can't sleep, which is four hours every night, I think. Um, but this is a picture of Ebal and Gerizim. Now, I want you to, have, have you, can you see right here, this little crescent and this little crescent? I highlighted it here for us. That There's a natural amphitheater in the side of both of these mountains facing each other. And you could just, and I, I was so excited looking at this and just using my imagination going, wow, look at this massive stadium God has brought the children of Israel to. And it's the place, it, it centers in on, um, except I would say that this area right down here in front, I'm shaking, I'm sorry, I need less coffee. Um, this area right here, Jacob's Well, uh, Joseph um, traditionally was buried in this area. This would be where the great Oka Shechem is. But it almost centers entirely on this area, the tribes, remembering Abraham and the promise of the land, remembering Jacob and the covenant to say, I'm going to bury these gods here, and we're going to serve the Lord and serve him, him alone um, under the great um, oak of Shechem. So I need to fast forward a little bit now. Um, because I really want to get to Jesus and the woman at the well. That's kind of where we're going to go and come back to uh, Jacob's well here in a minute. Um, But the first king of Israel was crowned here. You know who that was? Most of you would say Saul. You you sound like me. You're very close. (laughs) Abimelech. Did you know that Abimelech was the first king of Israel? You taught in Sunday school all through your life. Um, Saul was the first king of Israel. Technically, he was the first God-ordained first king of Israel. But Abimelech was the first king of Israel. It says in Judges 9, he went to his father's house. And this is Gideon's son, by the way. Gideon had 70 sons. 70. 70 sons. Okay? Wow. Um, and one of his sons went out and slaughtered all of the rest of his sons so that he could become king. All of them, except for one. This is the story. I'll give it to you briefly. Judges 9.5. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers. The son of Jerubbaal, and that's, that's Gideon's other name. Um, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar. Look at how many times this great tree keeps coming up at Shechem. Gathered at the great tree pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Um, here's what's interesting. His dad, Gideon, that's a story you know well. His dad, Gideon, was named Jerubbaal 
because he took down his father's idols. He went throughout the land and took out all the idols of the land. And so they named him Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend with him. He's gone to war against the idols. So let the idols contend with him, Jerubbaal. And so um, what's interesting in this story, and this is just a side note, Abimelech practiced idolatry and died in disgrace and begged his armor bearer to kill him. What other king, the exact same story? Saul. So Saul and Abimelech, you have an identical story going on, a very identical storyline. That is a side note. So anyway, fast forwarding in time, we have Israel is established. David becomes king. Um, we have one nation. You know this story well. Um, Jerusalem is, is the city of the great king. Um, and then there's division in the land. And Israel is split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom we call Samaria named after its capital, um, Samaria, and Judea named after uh, Jerusalem, really. Jews receive their name because they're from Judea. Uh, the Samaritans receive their name because they're from the area of Samaria, but don't make, make a mistake about this. These are the descendants of the Israelites. We're going to talk about this. But this is the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. Now, what's interesting about this is um, this story begins when Ahimelech, he's a prophet, comes to um, Jeroboam. And he, says, and he says this to Jeroboam. He's going to become the king of the north. Um, and he's going to say this to him. He's going to say, uh, he's wearing a robe. He takes off his robe. He rips it into 12 pieces. He gives 10 of the pieces to Jeroboam. And he says, God is going to bless you with 10. And he's going to give two um, to, um, uh, to Rehoboam. Well, no, he's not. He's going to take the other two and he's going to say, this goes to Rehoboam. And he's essentially saying this, Rehoboam's a wicked man. This is a wicked thing that's going on and God's going to bless you, Israel, the north. He's going to bless you. And Jeroboam's walk begins as a beautiful thing. And immediately he goes up there and sets up golden calves and goes wicked. I mean, it, 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 it turns around in a hurry. Um, but what I want you to catch just in this, this story where we're going today is that you just saw an ugly divorce. The ugliest divorce in history. When you know how a horrible a divorce can be when two people are, are breaking up and you're dividing possessions. And this is something that was sacred to me. It's going with her. And sometimes that's kids. And sometimes it can be anything. But divorce is ugly. And this nation is divorced. And so now the most sacred site in Israel's history, Shechem, Ebal, Gerizim, who does that belong to? The north. And Jerusalem is going gonna, is gonna to belong to the south. And they're dividing the possessions of the land, in a sense. And, and so this is really what's going on here. Um, and then uh, comes, comes the captivity. I'm going to just kind of read uh, 2 Kings 17. Uh, this this um, is also in 1 Chronicles 5. It says this, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, and Gozan and the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. Later in that same chapter, it says this, the king of Assyria then brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sephravim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. So the Israelites have now been deported. We have five other nations that have been brought in to replace them. Um, crazy, you know, parenthetical story that happens here, lions start destroying, killing all the people in the land. 
Lions start killing everybody. They feel like we're cursed. What do we do? Oh, that's right. This land is under covenant. So they went back and they brought a priest to come back and teach the ways of Israel to the foreign nations living in, in, um, in the land of Israel. Then later, the Israelites, after Assyrian captivity, moved back in. And, that's, and, you, and you find that in Second Chronicles 34. It talks about the Manasseh, Ephraim, and the remnant of Israel back in the land. But they have now commingled and they, they are becoming mudbloods, you know, is the, I guess, Harry Potter term for this. Um, they, they, they're becoming sort of second class in the eyes of um, the Jews. But now I'm going to give you the other story. Before we get into John chapter 4, where Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman, I want to give you a different perspective of what a Samaritan was. I always thought that a Samaritan was a second-class citizen, that the Jews are the true children of God, and that the Samaritans are, again, mudbloods. They they are just lesser. But that's the the Jews' account of who the Samaritans are. That is not the Samaritan account of who the Samaritans are. For the Samaritans, their name means the watchers of Torah. We are the guardians of the law. We are the true Israelites. The Jews to the south are wicked sorcerers. They considered them sorcerers because there's only one prophet for the Samaritans, for the children of Israel, Moses. There is no prophet after Moses. They don't believe in any of the narrative, what you would believe in. Anything after Deuteronomy is not part of their Bible. Even to this day, Samaritans are still alive today, and the beliefs have continued unchanged to this day. There are only 800 alive today. But they've continued the same practices. Uh, Here's a picture, um, this modern-day picture of Samaritans in this same region. Because they honor Mount Gerizim, uh, I'm going to kind of go back to my notes for this. Uh, they honor Mount Gerizim as the center mountain of the world, the most central mountain of the world. They also believe that Mount Gerizim is the highest mountain in the world. Now, for us living in Colorado, we're thinking, it's cute. And I was laying there reading about this, and I thought, that's strange. Horse tooth is higher than, than Gerizim. And then I thought, no, I'm laying down right now higher than Gerizim. Um, I'm currently higher than Gerizim. It's not that big of a mountain. And then it really hit me. Wait a second. Mount Ebal is just across the valley, only a mile away. And Mount Ebal is higher than Gerizim. So at least choose the highest of your two mountains to be the highest mountain in the world. Um, But to this day, you can look this up. That is absolutely held as a conviction that Mount Gerizim is the highest mountain in the world. The tabernacle is buried somewhere on Gerizim, according to Samaritan tradition. And that Moses will return someday to uncover the, the, the tabernacle from hiding. Um, but anyway, I, and there's a, whole lot, there's a whole lot more I'd love to, to talk about these people, but it is a really, really interesting story. They believe that Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac really took place on Mount Gerizim. The Garden of Eden was Mount Gerizim in Samaritan tradition. Um, and so this is the place of uh, Jacob's vision. They consider it the true, uh, the true house of God. And so that's kind of what I want you to know about these children. Of the, the, When you talk about the Samaritans in the New Testament, don't just look at it from the Jewish perspective where like they're lesser class citizens. When they passed and Galilee was to the north and, and, and Judah to the south, 
they had to pass through the land of Samaria unless you took a really roundabout route through the Decapolis. You had to pass through this land, and Josephus writes about it and said, these people are violent. It's dangerous to go on these roads. These people hate us. And so isn't it interesting when Jesus tells a parable about the good Samaritan who's helping someone on the road when they were notorious for being the bandits. So there, you pass through this land of Samaria. The Samaritans are thinking, we are the true children of God. You are sorcerers. They do not believe that the division took place after David's son, uh, Solomon's sons, Rehoboam, uh, between Rehoboam and Jeroboam anyway. They believe the division took place with Eli. Um, that Eli was the first wicked sorcerer that was sent to the land. And Eli led Judah astray. And so this, you can see how, doesn't that make your, your hair just, it makes your skin crawl when you hear things like that. You wait, that's not what the Bible says. And they're right. you're right. We don't believe your Bible. We are the children and the guardians of Torah. We guard the real thing. Now, I want you to imagine how offensive that language was to a Jew. All of this. Everything I just said, you even speak negatively about Eli, Samuel, David, the prophets. I mean, you you couldn't even walk through a grain field without them wanting to stone you. Now you're going to curse their prophets? Hatred between these two groups. Okay, and so that's that's kind of one thing I want to bring when you go into this story. These are coins um, from uh, the Roman era that show a, depict a picture of a temple. There was a temple on top of Mount Gerizim. Um, not so different from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they did not honor Jerusalem. They honored their temple. And there was a temple that stood on top of Gerizim. All right, so now I'm going to go ahead and bring us um, just 10 minutes left. I'm so sorry. I'm going fast. But I want to go ahead and bring us to John chapter 4. Um, Jesus comes. Um, well, the Lord, it says the Lord... Uh, learned of this, he left Judea and went back uh, once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Now, Sychar is actually located within, I had to really figure out where it was, but located within um, uh, this area in Shechem. And near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, what's important here is if you go back to a story of Jacob at a well where he meets Rachel, it's also the heat of the day. And, he, and she comes and he says, I'll give you water, all right? In the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, Jacob gives water. Now we're talking about Jacob's well. It's the, it's the bright light, the heat of the day. Um, just as a side note, I don't like to get into the whole, uh, so many times when I hear this story, it's about she's coming in the middle of the day because she's ashamed of the way she lives her life and she's trying to hide. I don't think any of that's true at all. The Bible doesn't really emphasize that. Um, what's being emphasized, I believe, is this. In the previous chapter, um, a, 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 a Samaritan, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night Nicodemus comes at night, and he will not be honest about the truth of what he believes. He comes with a confession. We, he's part of the Sanhedrin, we know that you're from God. He says that. And then Jesus concludes the chapter by saying, but you're terrified, and you won't come out, and you won't come clean about what you know is in your heart. In the middle of the night, now we have a Samaritan woman at broad daylight, 
and her life is going to be revealed to her. And that's really what I believe is going on. Um, it's a deliberately juxtaposing these two. But um, it's going to go on and say, Sir, the woman said, verse 11, You've nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? Drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a, uh, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. Uh, the reason this is interesting in the story, and, and this is something I'd, I challenge you to do when you're reading through the gospel accounts particularly, usually people and healings represent something much larger than the person themselves. For example, the demon-possessed man, Legion, when he comes to the Decapolis, when he comes there, that man represents the Decapolis, living in darkness, living in the tombs. And that's why the demons beg him, not simply don't cast us into the abyss, don't cast us out of the region, they say. Because he represents something larger than him. Jesus was bringing his kingdom to the Decapolis. Here are the same thing. Look at this. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. This is the history of the Samaritans. Five nations came and intermingled with the children of Israel. Babylon, Kutha, Hamath, Philistia, and Seraphim. It says this in 2 Kings 17. The men from Babylon made Succoth Benoth. Um, these are the idols that they, they constructed. The men from Kutha made Nergal, and the men from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Seravites burned their children in the fire of the sacrifices to Adramalek. Each of these five nations brought a foreign god with them. They intermingled it with, with God, and now... Jesus says to this woman, yeah, you've had five husbands. I believe he's speaking about the history of Samaria. He's talking about this. Um, uh, and so I thought that was super interesting. Paul says this. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. So this is the history of Shechem. Abraham is promised this land and a covenant that I'm going into a marriage covenant with my God. His grandson comes and buries foreign gods under the tree and says, no, we will belong to God alone. Joshua comes back to the same place and has Israel cry out in this amphitheater, we will serve God alone. We'll put foreign gods away from us and this land will be ours. Now Jesus, generations later, comes back and he drives this message home in the same place. Jesus is standing at Shechem, I'm sorry I didn't put that map back up on here, but Jesus is standing at Shechem within a mile. Now, some of you guys have been there. I know the Martins have been there. I've been studying their pictures. I've been studying all these locations. Wherever you place these locations, they're all at least within about a mile of each other, except for the two mountains. You're standing here, Jacob's well, the tree, very close to this the memorial, the standing stone that, that um, Jacob set up, all right here. Jesus comes into the center of it all 
where he spoke to Abraham. Isn't that something? Where he spoke to Abraham, where he spoke to Jacob, where he spoke to Joshua. And now he sits at this woman and he says something very powerful because she's going to go on and say this. The Jews say we should worship God at that mountain. But the Samaritans say, no, we will worship God on this mountain. Jesus responds and he says, neither on this mountain or this mountain. Guess what? The Samaritans are corrupt and so are the Jews. You're both corrupt and both religions have become incredibly corrupt. But a time is coming when those true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth and give themselves entirely to him. Um, I hope that breathes just a little bit of depth. I know like some people get bored by history, but it's obviously you can tell it's my life. I'm fascinated by it. But I pray that that will breathe a lot more richness when you read the story of this, um, anything that involves Samaria and the history of these Samaritan people and why it's also so important when you get to Acts 8, and I don't have time to cover it tonight, but when you get to Acts 8 and the gospel now goes from the Jews and we've moved into Samaria, that is a massive thing that is taking place. So go home and read um, Acts chapter 8 in that context. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for uh, uh, just the depth of your word. Um, and again, I, I pray that it would be more than just history uh, for us. Um, but God, that we'd look at this and we'd see the richness and the depth, your love for your people. I pray, God, that um, you would examine us, examine our hearts. See what foreign gods we've set up in our land that should give us the courage of Gideon and the courage of Jacob and so many others that, that went to war against gods, that, uh, any other god in our life that's not you. And I pray, pray that you'd bring us back to you um, entirely in our hearts. Um, Father, I just praise you so much for your word. Uh, it, it, it fills us. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.